Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am in Franklin, Tennessee, outside a conduit church in, man, just this rolling hills and trees, and there's a house up on that hill, and there's a house over there by the road, and this is a beautiful area. And so I'm sitting with Darren Tyler pastor at Conduit Church, and uh, my man. Isn't Thanks. it fascinating to be, this, where we're sitting right now, actually the Civil War was fought really all through here, like the Battle yeah, of Franklin, right. and so, like, troops marched here, and in fact, the guy that lives next door, Hood, his family is like a, an ancient Civil War, you know, but now it's just so quiet, and so it's in the middle of, like, everywhere, but yet the middle of nowhere at the same time, like, there's, like, actual functioning cattle farm on the other side of us and we have windows so two weeks ago a cow was giving birth like during second service which is that'll distract (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) kids are getting to see like what a placenta looks like from a cow (laughs) during church going what's that giant thing that just fell out of that (laughs) darren tyler Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Dude, thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Dude, it was so good hanging with you at Kay's yesterday afternoon in the middle of that monsoon rainstorm we had out on his porch trying to keep the rain out. But it's a classic Tennessee thing where, like, you'll wake up in the morning, it says whatever, 70% chance of rain. But what it means is sometime around four, three or four in the afternoon, it's going to just monsoon for like 20 minutes. Yeah. And then it's sunny again. Yeah. Makes for beautiful sunsets. Oh, I can imagine. Well, yeah, imagine. it was good to meet you. So I was in a Holy Smokes Bible study back in the 90s. Okay. It was the first time I became aware of it. Yeah. I didn't know that it was like a thing. Yes. I don't even know when it became a thing. So it became a thing. People, if, if they want to know, they can go back to the very first episodes of Holy Smokes and listen to it. But it really started 17 years ago in Kay's backyard. He sent a text to four megachurch pastors in Colorado Springs and... CEO of a major ministry and all of them showed up and all of them at the end of the night said, I need more of this in my life. And they tried to figure out, okay, we can't say you're coming over for, you you can't tell me, you you know, come over for cigars and bourbon because my assistant might be reading this. And so, (laughs) so Nazarene churches on that list, bro. So what can we call this? And Holy HS, Holy Spirit time. No, no, no. How about Holy Smokes? And it just stuck after that. It stuck after that. So what I've noticed is that there are a lot of groups that will call themselves Holy Smokes. Okay. But we are by far the biggest, and we've actually trademarked the name for the group. Okay, so that makes a ton of sense. So the guy that first introduced me to this idea was a guy named Chuck Tilly. And Chuck is a institution in the music business in Nashville, Tennessee. Like he gave me my first job in 1994. He actually gave me my first cigar that wasn't a Swisher Sweet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I get it. I like, get it. Where I grew up, like we were smoking, like wooden tips were like uh, classy, you know, but the plastics were like what the poor kids smoked. And uh, so to get like an actual cigar, I was like, what's up? I could, oh, get, yeah. I could get used to this. Yes. And I found it, especially in the music business, um, the music business is almost like a kayaking without any fun. Like you just get into the morning, you strap yourself into your seat and just yeah. hope to God that you are alive by the end of it. And, and then you put your kayak on your roof and you go home. So being able to just like in the middle of some real stressful whatever, just to literally wander out and just, you know, 
burned down a Macnudo, like was strangely relaxing. So that said, like that's where I first encountered, and you, that was that would have been like a preamble kind of thing. Like it was just a group that, because yeah. it was like Phil Keggy, Tommy Coombs. Yeah, I was by far the youngest guy. James Ryle, Chuck, and they would just yeah they would come and. What I loved about it was, and I don't know if this is how the normal is now, but we would just we'd go through a book. But all it was was somebody would read the chapter of the Bible, mm -hmm. whatever book, and then we would just like talk about it. Yeah. And it was remarkable how awesome that was, how deep you could get into the Word with some really wise men. For me, they were older men. Just this is what I see in the Scripture. This is what the Lord is saying to me. And nobody wrote a sermon. Nobody had three points. There was no presentation, no slides. And yet a deep time, you know, with the Lord. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. So Kay comes along 17 years ago and realizes this is something that does not surprise me, by the way, from what I know of Kay. Yeah. yeah. That he and, and, saw and, this and thought, this is more people need to experience this. It, well, yeah. And so he, last night when we were hanging out at uh, Robert Clendenin's house, he said that he started just once a month. I think it was the first Friday of the month. Okay, come on over. And it ended up being like 150 guys in his backyard. And one of those guys that came in was like, we need to make this a weekly thing. And so he started offering Paul Felitas, who episode number seven, I believe, you know, he was like, okay, I'm just going to offer my backyard. And some Wednesdays it would, you know, just a handful of guys. And other days it would be more guys. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, when you go during the summer in Colorado Springs, there's often 30, 40 Sometimes, depending on who's in wow. town, there might, there might, there's more than 40 guys there and women. And because we do have some cigar smoking women there in the Springs. That makes sense. The, the rugged mountain women feel like tough women. Like, feel like <laughs> I can see how Colorado could do some of that. <laughs> so first question, what you smoking? This little surprise breakfast cigar. You like it? I love it. Okay, so it's a sweet tip that I believe I got, it's a house blend from the ash in Dallas, Texas. And I had, I brought two of them on this trip. They're my last two from. Oh dude, I'm honored. And yeah, it was, I had one on this trip and it was like, oh, this is a really just nice mellow with the sweet tip and. Yeah, I mean, so it's 9 a.m., like full disclosure. Like, yep. uh, the, yep. we, did, we didn't have an omelet bar, but we, <laughs> you know, so it's almost like uh, smoking cake. Do you know, like, there's like, I've actually, not, uh, I've dipped it in port before a cigar, so it almost feels like that, but I've never actually had a cigar from a store or a shop that, that had that. So this is amazing. And thank you for uh, letting me have your last one. Not a problem. So we we're talking yesterday, you grew up in west, southwestern Nebraska? South central western, right on the border of Kansas, Nebraska. Like, which there's a lot of border. Oh, buddy, is there not a more soul-crushing exercise than driving across Kansas? I grew up in Wisconsin. I've made the drive through Kansas, and I've made the drive through Nebraska, and they're both, they're, I, mean, I mean, Kansas is, the redeeming thing about driving through Kansas is I'm going to end up in Kansas City and be able to eat at Joe's Barbecue okay, that's in fair. Joe's Kansas City. you got something to look forward to. That's exactly. fair. Exactly. But, but you got to make but a, going through Omaha, but going through Nebraska, <laughs> I mean, there's really... Nothing. There's nothing for me to look forward to. No. The only place. Iowa. Yeah, right? Cedar Rapids? Like, what do you. The only place there are curves in the road, I think, are where they put them just so you have to. So you wake up because it's so straight. 
But yeah, I grew up right on the Oregon Trail, about 30 minutes from the, the geographical center of the United States, which I don't know that that really means anything other than I remember up in any direction it's the geographical center. But yeah, I was there. I spent my formative years there. I graduated from high school in 1989, and I realized it was just one of, those, one of a million little indescript towns that I, if I stay here, I'm going to be trapped um, forever. How big was the town? Uh, we were the town town, so we had a stoplight that blinked, and so there were 1,500 of us. We had a grocery store. I grew up in a town of 1,200. 1,200, so you know the drill. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So did you feel, so I felt weirdly safe and trapped at the same time. It was a weird yes. feeling. Of, I want to get out of here, but, but I'm restless. scared to get out of here. But restless yeah. at the same time. Yeah, you start looking around and thinking, there's nothing wrong with living in a small town. There's nothing There's nothing dishonorable at all about being a farmer or whatever. But I just, I wasn't made for it. So I loaded up my piece of junk Oldsmo Buick, whatever car. And I literally, I graduated high school and drove out of town that night. Because I was escaping something that I didn't know what I was escaping. But I just I had to get out. And so, uh, yeah, I was... Did you have a plan on where you were going? Yeah, I was headed to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Had friends there. 1986, I went on a, a mission trip. It was the first time I was ever on a plane to Guatemala with a guy named Ron Luce, who yeah, started a ministry yeah. called Teen Mania. But yeah. he was 24 years old. Uh, it was his first trip he was leading with teenagers. Really? Yeah. There were 30 kids, and I was one of them. And my mother uh, and father, they free-ranged us like chickens. Like, you just open the door, and they'll come back at night. <laughs> Same. Right. When it was dinner time, my mom had an old cowbell from the farm my dad grew up on. She'd go outside, ring that cowbell, and we'd be, you know, the sound carries halfway across town, and we'd hear the cowbell. Yeah. "Uh, Dinner time. Yeah. There was no texting, right? Uh, Calling you to get home. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she sent me um, because it it sounds incredibly stupid, but she literally let me, a 16-year-old kid, go with a 24-year-old guy that she'd never met, and spent a summer in Guatemala. Really? Two months. But so I, I, he was there. I had some friends at Bible colleges, and then I had a, a, a friends that worked for a guy named Willie George, a guy named Blaine Bartell. And so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going there. At that point, I still wanted to be a rock star, like I had a, a cascading. So you're a musician? Yeah, but I wasn't very good. Um, I didn't let that stop me. But uh, yeah, so that was the idea. I get to Tulsa and figure out my music thing. I had the uh, cascading mullet, the earrings, and. 1989, baby. Well, the Missouri Compromise, man. It was permed in the back, but like spiky on top. Like, oh, weren't sure what we were committing to. <laughs> <laughs> Missouri Compromise. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, I was in Tulsa for those years, and it was there that I uh, started hosting a radio show. I was ultimately uh, released from my duties because we were too something controversial. And But in that time, I, I met a guy named Jay DeMarcus, who was in a Christian band, like a pop duo. Okay, so go back to radio super yeah. quick. Was it on a Christian radio station? And yeah. you were too, okay, that totally makes sense then. That yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Because <laughs> we were not controversial, but, and I was just trying stuff. Like my entire plan, I didn't have a plan. I just hoped something neat happened. Like that was my plan. But I met this. Are you an opportunist? Yeah, maybe. I've actually never thought of myself in that way. Okay, so hmm. Bob Beal. He was on the focus board for years and years and years. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Business co- author, consultant. Uh, he wrote a book. I don't remember the name right now. It's basing it. But basically the gist is there are three types of people in the world. There are planners, there are problem solvers, and there are opportunists. And opportunists are the smallest 
sliver of that pie. And he said, he said, listen, if you're an opportunist or you're a problem solver, don't try and set goals. Boy, that's don't, don't, freeing. Why did I not read that book yet? Our entire plan for our church is we don't have a plan. We're just doing the next right thing and whatever doors are opening. That's not quite that way, but like we don't have a five-year plan. Yeah. Like we're not yeah. looking at growth strategies and spreadsheets and I'd yeah. rather claw my own eyes out than that. And, yeah. And when I think back on it, any plan that I would have had as a pastor or whatever wasn't as good as the one I ended up getting to do. So it's like there seems to be this delicate dance that we do of like trying to put guardrails up so that we're not just being crazy, but at the same time, just waiting for those opportunities. Yeah. That's interesting because you say opportunist, and I actually feel that like in a pejorative sense, but that actually puts a positive spin on it in a way that actually kind of resonates with. Yeah. You know, I'm in the ministry that I'm in right now because of an opportunity. Like I didn't seek it. I remember early hmm. on in my career at Focus morning devotions and some of these guys would talk about their goals and we'd hear it on the broadcast as well you know talk, setting goals and trying to work towards those and i remember talking to the to these just godly men that were just pouring into me guys i just it doesn't resonate with me is there something wrong no you're no and then we went up to um cody wyoming for a focus board meeting doc wanted me to go out there for to record interviews at the beginning and the end. And then during the day, I was just gonna be around just to help out whatever's needed. Ended up spending a whole lot of time riding four wheelers on this giant ranch. That's my kind of meeting. So because I was go I needed to be out there early with Doc and I needed to be there late with Doc, the board member that was hosting us had a private jet and was sending the private jet to go pick up Doc Shirley and Joe Silverio, Doc's security guy. And so I shot Becky Lane, Doc's assistant, a message and I said, hey, would it be possible for me to just hop on this plane and then save the ministry some money? Doc was like, yeah, I'd love to have him. I'd love to have him on the plane. And so it was, it was just it was the nicest private plane I've ever it's been on. Plane, and it was, yeah. oh my gosh, it was so good. I get out there and I hadn't got my hotel yet because there was a hotel in Cody. This was outside of Cody. And I was just like, and I was just sh being shown around the, the property and the ranch manager, he was like, so are you staying in town? We got some extra room here. And I'm like, I haven't got my hotel room. I'm going to stay here on the ranch with, with Joe at the building down at the bottom of the ranch at this empty little house for ranch hands that... So you're and, an and, and, he looked, and he looked at me and he said, dude, I guarantee you, if I open up the dictionary and look up the word opportunist, I'm going to see your face. And it just, something inside of me was like, ooh, I kind of am that way. It's, because, it's, it's a fun way to live. Oh my gosh, yeah. The adventure that you can have by not over planning your trips. And by the way, the traveling with me, if you're not an opportunist, now that I know that word, is probably exhausting. <laughs> if, if you're a planner or whatever. Yeah. But I have experienced some amazing things just because I didn't have a plan that day. And it, and it was open. <laughs> this interview is one of those things because, yeah. because we are oh, so true. <laughs> so, so I only had a couple interviews scheduled today and I had this open slot at 9am and I was just like, all right, God, just fill it if you want. Otherwise I'm just going to hang out with Julie and the kids and cause I'm staying at Kay's and Kay had actually flown out this morning for an event in Jackson, Mississippi and Kay brings you over. I'm in the back, open up my laptop, getting ready to do some work. And Kay brings you over. And we have, you know, these just 
connection right. and just having a cigar, <laughs> hanging out. And, and, <laughs> and, so and he looked at me, he was like, you got time tomorrow to get interview this guy? You got to interview, you got to interview Darren. I was like, yeah, how does 9 a.m. work? That was yeah. so funny, dude, that, because that's exactly what this is. I thought, so Kay and I originally were supposed to meet at a cigar shop. He texted me, hey, do you mind coming to the house? And oh, by the way, I'm available at 2.30 instead of 3. And I literally thought I was just going to go hang out with him. And I walk in on a party. There's like family and dog and you're there and uh, another family. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> And yeah, that was actually a great conversation that did lead to, yeah, to this, an opportunity that I was planning on uh, working on some stuff for Sunday. And here I am. And said, and I'd much rather be doing this. <laughs> way better option so you're in Tulsa I'm in Tulsa kicked off the radio station yeah for being controversial yeah yeah in the middle of a, I'm I was supposed to interview a guy named Al Denson yeah and Al stood me up and so but the opening band was this band called East to West they were I remember a, a East to West pop duo great vocalist whatever but they just you know they needed sound guy touring guy and i just gotten fired so i ended up doing some tour management for them and then a girl named pam thumb and tammy trent and all from tulsa and in the middle of that i'm I, that's how i met chuck tilly because chuck was the manager and he owned an agency and i was 23 at 22 or something like that at this point and so he offered me a job to move to ultimately tennessee to be an agent at his uh, booking agency and I mean, I never booked a show. I didn't know the difference between an artist or a manager. He handed me basically a legal pad, a phone, and a stack of CCM magazines because in the back they had like tours and stuff and all their phone numbers of the promoters. Now we call it the internet. But And I was just literally just banging the phones, man. Like, you want to book this man? You want to book this man? And, yeah. I mean, I literally just stumbled bass-ackwards into that. And the band, there were two bands that he put on my plate with my legal pad. One was a guy named Ian Eskelin, who became All-Star United, who's still a really dear friend of mine, his wife, part of our church, and Jars of Clay. They weren't even a band. It was like two acoustic guitar players, a singer and a keyboard player. Yeah. And I think the only reason I got to book them is nobody else wanted them. <laughs> what? Well, they were like, nobody knew yeah. who they were. It was like a college roommate project. Yeah. Dan would probably, I, I, something, they were doing something at college. They made a record called Frail, and they stumbled into this record contract. And then, uh, I mean, it just blew up from under all of us. It was unbelievable how fast it happened. Really? So at that time, it was 94? Yes, yeah, 94. I saw a band opening for Dakota Motor Company. These are some random 90s Christian bands. Yeah. Uh, called Third Day. And they were really, they were lovely people. And so I started booking Third Day. And the only plan I had was, I'm sorry they're booked, Jars of Clay. But there's this other band, and they're really awesome. I'll send you a, I think it was a tape back then. <laughs> you know, they're going to be huge. They're going to be whatever. And obviously that worked well. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't want anybody to think that I was really smart about it. Because I genuinely wasn't. It was just, I'm sorry they're booked. Here's this other band. Opportunist, I guess. Uh, in fact, Chuck actually almost fired me for that because they were on a little basement record label that nobody cared about, and they were in this terrible record contract. So, so now, at 50 years old, I would be Who too... Who was? Uh, third Day, sorry. Okay, Third Day was third on day, a bad yeah. record contract. I would have been too smart to sign them if that happened in my life today because that never works. The guy that owns the record label is going to hold them, you know, whatever. 
so that's why Chuck was angry at me. We were driving down West End Avenue. We had, and he's I'm literally thinking, I'm about to get fired. He's angry and he's, I didn't ask him. I didn't say, hey, I want to start booking this new band. I was so dumb. I just started booking them. Mm-hmm. And they start showing up in the system. Yeah. And so at that point in my life, I'm thinking, what's everybody talking about? This is easy. This is like the easiest thing anybody could ever do. And then I, they ended up going to Creative Artist Agency because I realized, oh, we're the farm team. <laughs> we're just going to, we're going to do all this work and someone else is going to make all the money on it. And so at that point, I made some decisions, went out on my own a little bit, and I ended up at the William Morris Agency in the 90s, which is, you know, this little poor white trash kid. 29 years old with an office where someone answered the phone saying Darren Tyler's office and honestly at that point hoping that people didn't figure out who I really was were you here or were you still in Tulsa Nashville so by that time we'd made the move to Nashville Chuck had moved us to Nashville okay yeah I was we were here in Franklin and but the office was on West End in Nashville and it was the first time I experienced this idea that I'm a fraud and if they know who I really am Mm. they'll fire me they'll you know, and I felt that pretty genuinely as a kid that grew up on food stamps and welfare, government cheese, mm. that I was a fraud in my mind if they knew who I really was. And that began a real long journey for me that, you know, I still feel that from time to time standing here on a Sunday. If these guys knew who I really was, mm. you know, would they be back? And uh, fortunately, 20 years of journeying and work, I've worked past a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever experienced what I later learned was a panic attack. Like, I didn't know what it was. I'm just driving down the road and thinking I'm going to pass out and later learned, oh, that's called a panic attack. And all it is is because I've been stuffing down all this stuff and eventually it's going to come out one way or the other. But I didn't tell anybody that even like if they find out that I'm going to get fired. So I can't even tell anybody that that's happening in my life. And that defined much of the music career for me, honestly. Really? If you include the, the tour management days, the playing bass days, which is a whole other thing, about 20 years in the music world, by the time I was 39 is when the, the church was born out of a 20 year journey in the music world before this happened. Which it turns out being an artist manager is not unlike being a pastor. Like you're just working with a bunch of young people, unpack the vision that God has for their life, trying to help them come up with the right ideas and make them think it was their idea and let them take the credit for it. Like that's pretty much a pastor uh, at the end of the day. Prepare people to do the work of the ministry. <laughs> it's my job. So what were those years like? What bands did you manage? Did you manage other ones? Oh, yeah. So by 96, seven, so Jay DeMarcus, East to West, became Rascal Flats. So I got to be a part of a team that brought them to William Morris. I wasn't their responsible agent. There was a guy named Rob Beckham who's a just rock star agent there. But in that era, we were doing a lot of work trying to bridge the gap from the CCM world to the general market world. And so in that era, it was like Sixpence Done the Richer, mm-hmm. uh, the song that everybody hated and loved at the same time. I got to work one of my favorite bands that I actually listened to, but we could just never connect, was Plum, Tiffany Arbuckle. They got her on soundtrack. She was just made amazing music, but just never, I always felt never connected in the way of the level that she deserved. And then, honestly, we had like the CCM 101 barn. It was for him, Point of Grace, Jackie Velasquez. And we were just, I mean, in those days, we were just booking shows. I mean, it was one call on the line, one on hold, and one going to voicemail for eight to 10 hours a day. And that was a great era, honestly. Financially, it was great. People were selling tickets. It was, it was just great. And then in the 2000s, I started over again as a manager again in my own company and 
we were kind of like the butt rock agency, like Cutlass, Disciple, a couple of pop punk bands. Actually, one of my favorite little acts, I didn't get to work with them very long, was Everlife, these three sisters that were on Disney records and toured with hmm. Miley, and they were just lovely. In fact, they're still part of our church family. One of their, uh, in fact, Amber is my administrative assistant now, the girl that was one of the girls, those three sisters, yeah. and really enjoyed what they were doing. and. They were a good example, again, of an artist who, talent is important in the music business, but it doesn't guarantee anything. It's one of the only industries, I think, in the world where you could be really the best at your craft and you could still end up playing on a corner in downtown Nashville because something lucky has to happen, or blessed, depending on your theology, but yeah. something has to happen that's completely beyond your control, and then you're off to the races with it. What are those kinds of things that are beyond your control that cause the, some artists to break out and others to not so every that you've seen yeah it generally comes to the song itself so i think jars of clay is a good example of that actually i think cutlass is a good example of that when i started working with them in 2001 or two when i say they the original lineup were not that talented musically but the lead singer had something special in his voice we called it jock rock so it was like it was like a butt rock band, but because his voice was so mainstream feeling, it kind of was like, you know, kid tested, mother approved, the trick serial of rock and roll. But it was about the song. Like there was something in that record that most other artists or musicians actually would kind of like wrinkle their nose at it. But there was something about the songs that connected on a level that you can't predict, you can't whiteboard out, you can't scientifically explain that a, sometimes a song just hits. Yeah. And I think that the, of all the changes in the music business, that is still the same. That the song that in the old days we would say, if it made you pull over on the side of the road and cry and then run to the next music store and buy the record, like that, there was something about that, that that's still true today. Mm -hmm. That even in Spotify, where the, in the 90s, everybody was worried that digital, we, we wouldn't have enough music anymore. Nobody would stop making music or everybody would stop making music because there was no money in it. But what ended up happening instead was there's way, way, way too much music. So finding your way to the top of that heap is complicated, but the song seems to be it. And that's the thing that nobody can predict. Every, almost every artist I've ever been with a studio, everybody thinks this song is a hit. And then you find out when you release it, that's when you know if it was a hit. And that still seems to be true. How else have you seen the music industry change since when you started and when you got out and even now, because you're still yeah. tied into it? Yeah, weirdly enough, I am still tied into it just because of where our church is located in my, in my circle of friends still. Yeah. So in good ways, it's changed that the gatekeepers are no longer uh, just a handful of people making a decision whether a song is a hit or not. If a song is a hit, TikTok has proven this. There's a, a young lady here, a uh, dear friend of ours, part of our mission family, named Natalie Taylor. And her husband, John, played in Paramore. Uh, great guy. And they just literally make music in their bonus room. And she had a song called White Flag that, if I say it, you wouldn't know it. But if you heard it, you'd be like, oh, that song. It was like, like the 2020 TikTok song of the year. Just, I mean, exploded without a record label, without a radio station, without... So what's happening in my mind is that those things are breaking through in a way that industry people can't stop like they used to. And I don't think anybody ever stopped it. So in the, in the positive sense, those kinds of songs and those kinds of artists are still out there and they're actually finding their way 
to the top in the negative way consolidation of radio of network radio of there's no more there's not a dj in washaw wasaw wisconsin spinning to what he knows his local audience wants there's a guy sitting in la or new york or nashville saying these 20 songs are going to be in rotation these 10 or 12 are the ones that everybody loves we're going to keep them in there it basically means if you're you have like one or two chances for an artist to get a song on a national network and that's also called winning the lottery it's not a business model you know sometimes it happens but they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're targeting to an audience of people that are that actually help financially support it. So in Christian music, especially financially support it. And teenagers don't write checks to radio stations. That's the way the model is. Yeah. So on the negative side, what that means is then, if this is what everybody seems to want based upon our our numbers, then this is every artist is now trying to f like fit those molds. Yeah. You're back to being the fat kid in gym class, you know, pick me, pick me, <laughs> like the last one chosen. Can I be that one? But you're trying to fit that. And so you end up, an artist can lose their identity in that. There are some artists, by the way, that that is not how that works. I, I, I think of Bart, Mike, and the Mercy Me guys, like they have managed to be able to create music that does fit that model, but it's still perfectly authentic to who they are. Yeah. Because that's what they were doing that in the 90s before anybody said, do Mercy Me, they were Mercy Me. So there are artists that, that that is for sure what it is. And you know what, the, the, the other thing that is, the, the way the models changed is in the old days, we'd put them in a van and trailer and you just had to go play every just crummy club and hole in the wall and get your, that's how you got your uh, 10,000 hours, your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Those don't exist on that level anymore. And so it's really? harder, the way that you break a band now is, at least this is my 51 year old perception. Yeah is sitting in your bonus room making music and content. You gotta be just firing out content, keeping it. We used to, you'd make a record, you'd get off the road, you'd work on another record for a year, there'd be like a two year cycle between records. And now it's like, you need to be just- Constantly in front of people. Constantly creating songs and music. Constantly and, in front of people, mm -hmm. on their mind. Yeah, the music business for sure is a what have you done for me lately? Really? You know, kind of, you know, the, like when I say Cutlass right now, in the 2000s, they were, huge mm -hmm. and now people probably think of cutlass or a guy my age with a sense of pity <laughs> like i used to think of petra when i got in the 90s <laughs> exactly you know like i listened to petra in the 80s but in the 90s we, we, it was like methuselah palooza in my mind my little 23 year old <laughs> arrogant mind oh i would look at a guy at my age with a sense of pity and now i'm that guy that people are like didn't he used to manage somebody back in the night was nobody cutlass or somebody i don't know i'll say this I have, uh, since we just had just moved, I had, uh, the gold records on that stuff from my previous, and we put them in a box and I pulled them out as we moved into the new house and they actually didn't make it onto the wall because there's a little bit of, I'm not even sure what I'm trying to, why I would do that. But my kids didn't know any of them. My kids. Yeah. Who's Audio Adrenaline? Who's Avalon? Who's Jackie? Who's P.O.D.? They didn't know who P.O.D. was. I, P.O.D. was one of my favorites. I mean, I remember hearing P.O.D. on a tooth and nail sampler. Oh, wow. And it was the very first song. It was before Snuff the Punk came out. And How it was, old are you? I'm 47. Okay, first of all, didn't know that. Congratulations. <laughs> it's working out good for you, Colorado. <laughs> that makes sense now. Okay, got it. And thinking this band is revolutionary. Because I, I always loved that fusion of rap and metal. I'm, yeah. I, was, I was a metalhead growing up. Still am to this day was listening to As I Lay Dying as I was driving in. 
Oh, that's funny. 47-year-old as I lay dying. All right. <laughs> I like. I knew I liked you. So that whole fusion, I mean, like when Aerosmith and Run DMC partnered oh, on Walk This Way. Changed uh, my life. <laughs> Anthrax and Public Enemy with Bring the Noise that was like, this is just awesome. And so that fusion, yeah. and then right around that time, Rage Against the Machine came out. And here's this Christian band with this amazing song on this tooth and nail sampler. And I remember seeing this little ad in Heaven's Metal magazine for, metal. for Snuff the Punk. Heaven's and Metal. And I, I remember I, that. I ordered it and I listened to that CD so much. Mm. And then I bought Brown. And then I bought. Uh, so was that 95? When was that? 96? Yeah, it was 94, I think, was when Snuff the Punk came out. Back in the 1900s. <laughs> and. I had a buddy of mine who was interested in getting into audio production. And so he went out to Southern California to a school out there to learn it. And he happened to become friends with one of the guys that like one of the bandmates, I think it might've been Woof, and it might've been his cousin and, or brother. Huh. And he got me a sample tape because they were recording fundamental elements of Southtown. And he came back to Colorado and he gave it to me. And I listened to that thing and I listened to that thing and I listened to that thing. And when that CD came out, it was like mind blowing. And then, you know, Southtown hit the oh. charts. So, and so I got my first tattoo yeah. on their bus watching the Southtown video for the very first time with everybody over off of like Charlotte Avenue or whatever. They were an example of a band that Christian music did not have a place for them. You were not the guy that they were targeting. Radio stations didn't. No. But those of us in the metal scene, yes. the hardcore scene. Yes, and you were a small but mighty audience Yeah. that would broaden, but the CCM people, even myself included, didn't quite understand it. But I mean, I tried to, because I was actually at William Morris, and I was actually trying to sign them to William Morris. They were uh, managed by a guy named Tim out of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is hilarious to me, and Tim Cook. But they were like, they were, nobody understood it really. And then Southtown hit. So that was the thing. So that when I say something's good now, in those days, CCM could not, they didn't have a wheelhouse for it. So they literally had to go to Warner. Uh, Barry Landis signed them. I think it was Barry. So they couldn't get to general market from the CCM side. By that point, they'd been on like Uncle Noah's record label and yeah. toured like, you know, relentlessly. And then they stumbled into this record contract with a general market label. And so one of the things I learned from them and Switchfoot and others like them was that it's really hard to get from the CCM world to the general market, but from the general market to the CCM world is a whole different story. You can get there because guys like me were like, oh, me too. Like I, they're one of me and they're out there in this, they're on MTV's. Yeah. Countdown with Carson Daly, yeah. was it? Yeah. And by that point, by the time they blew up, then my boss was like, yeah, Darren, we should uh, talk to, you know, POD. I'm like, that's not how it worked, man. They've already moved on, you know. They, uh, I had Sonny speak at Conduit about six years ago. Really? Man, it was powerful. We were still meeting at a high school back then, and uh, Head was, uh, Brian Head, yep. uh, Welch was there, Ryan Reese from L.A. Yeah. And... Uh, it was a really, I mean, we're just a church, but like a bunch of rock and rollers in there on Sunday morning. And it was, I don't know, I still respect Sonny. To, I, I love that guy. I respect him, his heart. He took a lot of crap that wasn't fair. 
as somebody that loves Jesus like he loves Jesus, loves his wife like he loves, like, I want that guy to be an example for my kids, you know. And in the 90s especially, they just weren't embracing that. And, you know, we humans, we don't embrace change that well yeah. in general. We like to protect. And in those days especially, whoever was being booked for events like youth events, whether it's a choir, the fire, whatever, generally speaking, we're going to be about five to six years behind whatever was happening in mainstream music because it's the guy booking it that's who I'm listening to. Yeah. So assume the kids are listening to it, you know, so they were still trying to book for him in Point of Grace for youth events when Third Day and Jars of Clay were blowing up. Yeah. You know, then Third Day and Jars of Clay blow up, but now they're booking them for youth events after the kids are stopping listening when POD is there. And so it's always five to six years behind, especially with festivals and events, because it's the guy booking it that's listening. He's, if I'm listening to this, this must be who we should book for this event so when i had that tape a fundamental that sent that demo tape of fundamental elements before southtown came out was when columbine happened and pod was had just finished a tour yes. and they were on their way back to southern california and they stopped and they did this just i just heard about it through the grapevine this show at a church in denver to kind of support those kids i think it was the calvary chapel yeah and I show up and they play a couple songs off of that demo and I'm singing along with we're them. You're the end kid at and, that and, point. And, and, and afterwards, oh, wow. afterwards they were like, who's this dude in Colorado that knows Southtown and knows these other songs that we played? And yeah, because that was like contraband. Like if, I'm, if it's what I think it was, a kind yeah. of a, like a tape like that wasn't supposed to be out there. Exactly. Like that was their greatest fear. Like Napster, someone uploads it, like free Napster, I guess. But so if you get it out like that, like that's hilarious. I bet they did wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Young Steve out there like rock horning it with the. <laughs> wow. So. How did your career in this wrap up and transition over into the church? Yeah. And was, was there something in between? No, this was, I mean, I literally sold my company on a Friday and was a pastor on a Sunday. Like it was that dramatic of a, a difference. Somewhere in the 90s, I'd had a, I guess they call it deconstruction now is the cool phrase for it. Back then it was just called a crisis of faith and we didn't have Twitter, so I didn't live it out publicly. I was just... Yeah. I genuinely wanted to know, okay, why do I believe this again? Like, is this really, why are we doing all this? And, and so I literally just at some point opened the Bible up and thought, what would I, if I washed up on an island somewhere and this was the only book here, what would I think this meant? Because honestly, there's some things you, that are so simple in the gospel that you literally have to go to seminary to misunderstand it. Like, it's so simple. <laughs> and, do you know what I mean? Like, and I know the gospel is complex. I mean, for thousands of years, people have plumbed the depths of the word and, but I had developed a real love for the Bible. Other people had hobbies and I would, you know, I'd be out on the road and listening to what now are called podcasts or whatever, but it was just teaching Bible teachers and trying to understand. And in the middle of all that, I started a Bible study for the young artists that I was working with. And uh, I, why? Because here's one of the reasons. If you're gonna shipwreck your faith, don't do it on the questions. Find out what the answers are and let the chips fall where they may. This is my opinion, but asking questions is not courageous. Anybody can ask questions. Courage is like seeking the answer Ooh. and the truth. Ooh. And I still find that now, like a lot of guys that are uh, girls, whatever, that are prominent on, they're, they're prominent because they'll say, I'm not making a statement, I'm just asking questions. But no, you're actually making a statement because of the question is the statement. At least find out what the answer is. The truth is not unknowable. So that was part of it was for these young artists 
another part was, you know, you've got guys like Greg Laurie saying, hey, we'd love them to bring the gospel at this Harvest Crusade, and me thinking, oh, no, you don't, because they don't know it. The attractional church model in that era, and still some ways, was that on a Sunday is when we reached, quote-unquote, reached the lost, and then the rest of the week is when we do discipleship. But no, discipleship never happened. Uh, I'm not saying that that model is inherently wrong, but there was a flaw. There was a, a hole in the boat. And so we had artists that were, you know, chopping, topping Christian music charts that, honest to goodness, did not know the difference between Jonah and Noah. Just simple things, you know. They didn't have flannel graphs in their Sunday school or something. And so it was born out of that. And we just met at Tuesday night at a little bar in downtown Franklin called The Listening Room, and it's now like Sweet CC's ice cream shop. And it sort of grew because I used to joke back in those days that the, my, the definition of a pastor is somebody answering a bunch of questions nobody's asking. Mm-hmm. It seemed kind of hilarious to me, and it's not fair, but it was what I thought. Because, you know, sometimes on a Sunday you hear somebody say, well, you're probably asking. I'm like, no, no, that's not what I'm asking at all. I'm asking, like, this question instead. And so I would... Basically, we just opened the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 1. Here's the questions I have, like, the, the, the chapter 1 and chapter 2 don't seem to quite line up. Why is that? And is it a literal seven days, or is there, is there a reason why the five, there's five different words for day in Hebrew, and all five of them are used in the first two chapters? Is there something to that? Is there... Really? Those were questions I was asking. Really? I didn't know that. Uh, oh, dude, it's fascinating. Yeah. That could be a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> but that was what the Bible study was born out of, those kinds of questions that people well, were asking. Well, Jewish tradition is all about debate and oh, discussion oh, and... Yeah. So one of my buddies, a guy named Zev Ornstein from Jerusalem, is a Jewish guy, and he says, I think it was him that said this, that uh, whatever you find uh, two Jewish guys, you're going to find three opinions. <laughs> and it's fun having conversations with Zev. is great. Um, but it was born out of that. But at the same time, when you go through the Word, the Word goes through you. And I'm also starting to see things like the Bible is literally permeates with immigrants and orphans and widows. And what are we supposed to do with that? And, you know, the first church controversy ever was over feeding widows, not over the worship band. They didn't have a worship band. They had a widows program. And I'm looking at me going, I don't really even know a orphan or a widow. I'm... You know, Jesus, the questions of Matthew 25, did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did, I'm like, nope, nope, nope. So that began to really wreck me. And fortunately, I, I mean, I, uh, we worked with Compassion International, fellow Colorado organization, and I love, 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 love Compassion. Uh, we still sponsor Compassion Kids 20 years later. But in my mind, it was like the reason we have to have a Compassion International is because this is a broad sweeping statement. I don't like to make sweeping statements about the church because when you do that, you're like, what church? Like, Because the church in the United States is by far the smallest. Is it the China church? Is it the, anyway. Western, where I was at, we were asleep at the wheel. And because of that, Compassion International, World Vision, those kinds of organizations were needed. And so I just had this weird idea that what if you don't have to choose between those two? What if that's actually what a church was meant to do to begin with? And then I thought back and thought, you know, the church I grew up in, we had a food pantry. The churches around town had food pantry. Like, that's not a new idea. It's not like I created, you know, plutonium. It's like that's what the church was meant to do. Yeah. But I didn't want to be a pastor, and I didn't want to be a missionary, and none of that was on my radar at all. Met a guy from Haiti. I mean, this is a very simple version of it. Uh, went with him, discovered what was happening there, and thought, okay, what am I? 
what kind of a jerk do I have to be to have just seen what I've just experienced and not do something? Like, I don't know what it was going to be, but nothing was not the right answer. And so that was like 2003 through 2010. I had a, my company was growing. I wasn't looking for a job. It was kind of confusing. Our, our MySpace page says we're not a church. We just act like one because <laughs> we didn't know what to call it. And we learned later that the reason we didn't know what to call it was because it was a church. And I mean, dude, for the first two years, I didn't tell people like on a plane, what do you do for a living? I would say I'm the, uh, this, the head of a president or whatever of a, of a nonprofit because I was just embarrassed to say Why? pastor. I had so much baggage that's not, again, not fair with it, but the pastors that I had encountered over the years, there were a lot of amazing guys and there's, but there were some that were not so amazing. And so I was like, I just didn't, well, you know what? Maybe that's actually think, giving it too much credit. I just didn't think it was cool. Mm. It, I was, you literally could swing a dead cat at Starbucks here and hit like five worship pastors in Nashville. There are churches everywhere. Probably, I don't know if that's Springs is like that, but it's here. Springs has a lot of churches. Yeah. So me starting a church here was the dumbest thing I've ever done. There's churches everywhere. Great churches that love Jesus. And so the fact that I think I could, the rock and roll guy that still kind of cusses, like what I could do that. It felt pretty stupid. So I was, I don't know, I was embarrassed about it. I was actually in Israel when I finally owned that that's what I'm doing. It was like four years into the journey. Hmm. Four years into the journey when I realized that the real pastor wasn't coming. I had it sort of in my mind that I'd... Do just, this until... Yeah, there'd be a real pastor come. And it wasn't even an aw shucks routine. It was like that felt like what maybe I was supposed to do. But four or five years in, like the real pastor had not come. And I was sitting on the Sea of Galilee... The spot where Peter had, you know, there's some places they think this is where it happened. There's some places they know this is where it happened. This is one of those ones where they're, they're pretty positive. This is where Peter would have jumped off the boat after the resurrection and swam like Forrest Gump, you know, to, yeah. to shore. And it was there that I think where Peter finally became Peter. He had been Simon trying to be Peter. That was the John 21, that whole, we all know the, uh, the John 21, do you love me? And Peter saying, hey, you know, I love you. And it's the, the agape yeah. love, phileo love or whatever. But here's the thing, I think. It was actually the first time Peter probably told Jesus and himself the truth, which is, I don't agape love you. I, a brother love you, phileo, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Maybe for the first time in his life, he told the truth. And it was like Jesus going, I can work with that. And he became Peter, because he finally admitted, stop pretending I'm gonna be the guy with the sword and the whatever. It turns out I'm the coward that's hiding, you know, all that, it was all just a big show. And he finally was honest with himself and honest with God. And for me, that was that moment of, okay, if this is what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life, I'm okay with that. Honest to God, <laughs> honest to God. And this thing that I never thought I wanted to do, I can't imagine doing anything else now. Because we get to gather on Sundays, but we get to use that gathering as a launch pad to storm the gates of hell. Like this is not a fortress that we're protecting. It's a pole barn. You know, we're a force that God is deploying. Jesus said, my church will, the gates of hell will not prevail. That's offense language, not defense. So when a kid in Haiti, or let's say Uganda has no clean water, the kingdom of this world says that that kid is not worth it. The government's not gonna bring you water your school's not bringing, they're not bringing you education because you're not worth it. 
but the kingdom of God says that they're so infinitely worth it that Christ would come and die and rest. And then he'd get the attention of some middle-aged white guy from Nebraska to drill a well here for you. That's like spiritual warfare saying to Satan, not on my watch, we're doing, you're not doing this on my watch. And that's what our church has been defined by for the last 12 years. Like we've been working inside of Asia, I can't say the country. So there are 4.5 million slaves alive today more than in the entirety of the European Western slave trade right now. So when people wonder like, what would I have done back then? The answer is, what are you doing now? And we have found out, at least in one country, this is complex because it's not easy to, you know, with, especially North Africa, it's not easy. But in this country, if you pay the debt that this slave has incurred, it's a legal binding contract and they have to let him go. And they can't just come get him again. And so, we have worked with a partner there that we love and trust and know. And at this point, 250 families in just the last two years have been set free. We've spent probably a million dollars on it. Wow. And every month, 12 to 20 of family, families with children who are literally right now making bricks with their parents because they're trying to pay off this debt that they'll never be able to pay. Every one of them of the 250 so far, they're all Christian families who are being persecuted by their Muslim captors and even Muslim fellow slaves. They are straight up uh, $150, $200 medical debt that somehow is now spiraled because of interest and penalties and the debts are now two to $3,000. But if someone would just write a check for it or cash, obviously, they have to let them go. And so we work with lawyers, we work with local pastors, it's very well thought out, and it also is very careful because it's very illegal what we're doing in their country. And so we do it very under the radar and we don't want to get our pastors killed. But I mean, is there a better gospel story than that? A debt that I can't pay and a currency that I don't even have and then some complete stranger comes and pays it for me and says you're free? It's the gospel, man, and we get to do that as a church family. I can grow old doing that. You're attacking it on this angle but are you or is there anyone trying to attack the underlying societal foundations to help break this for future generations so that way you're not just pulling people out consistently for the next hundred years there's two answers to that question one is keeping the families from taking on debt again you obviously experienced a major health crisis in your life that was tragic right yeah and you would have done anything and so imagine you're here and your wife, this is the story, but you, and it's $150 and I, you know, this, we can save her life here. And the, of course they take the debt to do that. So we've actually set up a fund now where they don't have to do that anymore. Ooh. So we're, again, 4.5 million of these, so we can't stop all of it. Yeah. We can only do what's right in front of us. On the other hand, the bigger problem is the Genesis 3 world problem, which is we are east of Eden now. We are not in the garden. And the entire economy of this country and multiple countries around them are literally propped up by this industry of slavery. And so the short answer is, I don't know who can change that. That's why you look at what William Wilberforce did back in the 1800s, like it was very radical, but especially in Muslim countries very specifically, also Hindu countries and Without a Judeo-Christian influence that all lives are valuable, that all lives are seen and loved and known by God, 
it literally, it's not a language barrier, it's an idea barrier. It doesn't even occur to them that it's wrong. It's literally like we go to the Minute Clinic to get cared for in their mind. This is just what we do. This is just how we do it. So it would be a major act of, this is like in my mind, like the N.T. Wright, you know, kingdom coming to earth journey. That's when it will be ended. And in the meantime, our job is to build outposts for the kingdom of God and hope that there's somewhere in this that there's a shift and that the, the kingdom will change that. But in the meantime, in North Africa, right now in Libya, Morocco, across, you could literally go and buy a slave off of a block like it's the 17, 1800s in the United States. It's happening right now. Iraq, Saudi Arabia. In those countries, by the way, we have not found a way because you quote unquote, buy that person, set them free. They could literally be captured and then sold again or worse, or not worse, but just bad. Like it's, you suddenly created eBay for slaves. Supply and demand. If I'm driving up the price, so we have not found a way. This one, this specific country, and there's actually I think one other country I've heard the International Justice Mission is doing it there. That it's literally like a payday loan. There is paperwork for it, and if you pay, it's a legal document, a legal transaction. So they are free to go. And so we've at least said like I don't know some of these other problems are way above my pay grade, but this one that's a right in opportunity. It's right in front of me this is the one that we can solve. Mm. And so, you know, I don't have a plan for how many. I don't have a plan for when we stop. It's just as long as there are slaves and as long as we have the revenues to do it, we're going to keep doing it. What else are you guys doing? The blessing that we get to do, Hebrews 10.24, I don't know, like I grew up in the church, so Hebrews 10.25 was, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together or some, which was, we were beat up with that as church kids. Like, you got to come here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, the, the church is open. But the entire sentence is for, uh, when you come together, inspire, provoke, I think is the King James word, one another to love and good deeds, comma, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves. So for us, our gatherings, our church is literally about awakening the possibility in everybody that there, you have a part to play in this world of changing what's right in front of you with the, not social justice, but the gospel. Like Jesus came to set us free. Like what would we do with that? What, you know, we have he says, occupy until I come. And so it wasn't hide out, but occupy. So we have, we don't have programs, we have people. And we sort of, what, what opportunities in front of us? So everything from drilling wells in Africa, so we plant churches in East Africa. We are building a church building, a drilling a well, building a school and a clinic in each village. They're led by locals. It's in the, we don't, we're not over there like pushing Western, whatever. This is a, a local pastor, indigenous. Uh, there's accountability, but and we've done 10 of those in East Africa, uh, in, in just every year planting one or two more. Haiti's where I first got destroyed in my own heart. And so in Haiti, I don't, really? talk, I don't Talk about that. Again, so I grew up poor, but I had welfare. And as much as I griped about it and I hated it and it was embarrassing and as much shame was around it, there was at least food. But in a country like Haiti, you know, it's a two hour flight from Miami. It's the Western hemisphere. There's no government program. Like, nobody's coming for them. And if you're five years old, because people say, well, their country's corrupt and there's this, well, yeah, oh, yeah, of course it is. But it's, if you're five years old, it's not your fault. So what do we do? And so, yeah, that was sort of this like rushing conversation I had. I mean, I'm just a rock and roll manager, white guy from Franklin, Tennessee, one of the wealthiest counties in the entire Southeast. What do I do? That was the question that first wrecked it. Like, what do I do and what am I responsible to do here? 
And so here we are almost 20 years now there in Haiti has not gotten better. It's actually gotten worse. Their, gov their central government is completely destroyed right now. Worse? That's a good question. So the welfare that I grew up on, again, I was fed and whatever, but they gave me free food, but no hope. Like I didn't have a plan because I got the sandwiches. At a state level, Haiti is a welfare nation. They are 100% dependent on money coming from outside expats. It's their largest source of income is Haitians who made it out who send money back and then governments who write checks to the Haitian government. So over corruption after corruption after corruption, it's just made the, the nation worse and worse and worse. So now you've got a country that literally at this point is controlled by drug gangs. Port-au-Prince, there's like 10 or 12 gangs that are now in control, literally in control. Kidnappings are up by like a thousand percent. Um, the planes, after the earthquake, Americans, Westerners, it was great. There was it felt like something was happening here that could maybe help bring this country back. But in the middle of all that, the government corruption was, it actually not gotten better, but worse. The president was assassinated a year ago, but strangely enough, that wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that president was just decorative. Like these drug gangs are controlling everything. And so their business model now is to kidnap for ransom people. And so there's a brain drain now that's happening out of Haiti, doctors, lawyers, teachers, are getting out of there. And I literally now, the only way I can get in and out is flying to Port-au-Prince. There's a two mile run to the, what they call the little airport. It's a pretty dangerous little spot. But if I can get out of Port-au-Prince, then for the most part, I'm safer, but we have to fly everywhere now. We have little, little uh, puddle jumper planes and mission aviation flights is the only way to get out of Port-au-Prince. Really? So that's the terrible thing. What's happening that uh, in a positive sense is that because, at least I can only speak for us, because I can get there, but I have to stay really on the down low and really quiet, but we can't take teams anymore. So we've already been training and raising up leaders there. Like we're actually building out like a, uh, an infrastructure there that is led 150% by Haitians. They still need our financial support, but like in Lake Kai, Haiti, maybe two years ago now, was a massive earthquake and 60% of that town is still destroyed, leveled. Like there's nobody coming to help them. The initial rescue operation happened and it's gone. And so we're there now building out, um, still building homes for people who lose them in earthquakes. We're still planting um, churches and raising up young men and women to be the leaders of those organizations. And if there's a future for that country, it's gonna have to come from inside out. And I think it's gonna have to happen from godly men and women raising up, becoming leaders and, and not getting sucked into the corruption cycle of it. And in the meantime, again, that's a problem. I don't know how to solve it. So I have to solve the problems that I, that I know we can solve. You meet a woman whose daughter is severely disabled and she's lost her home in the earthquake and then she gets into the next one and that one's destroyed and so with fire. So we can help her. We can help families like that. And so we continue to do that. We haven't talked about your family at all. How'd you meet your wife? Tulsa, opportunist. <laughs> she's a saint, bro. She is a saint because she married me before I was ever in the music business. Like I wasn't like I had a stable job and I was a good catch. Like, honestly, I don't know what she was thinking, to be honest with you, but we actually got married quickly. So I met her in Tulsa at a restaurant. I was working at a restaurant as a waiter in between because I kept getting fired from radio, whatever. So she was at that restaurant and we met there and we got married quickly because the job 
so we were engaged, but we, we moved up the engagement. We moved up the, the married date because I'd actually gotten that job from Chuck Tiller. That offer happened. So she has, man, she's been a trooper. She jumped on board with that. We moved here. She didn't know anybody. And then we started church. She's 100% supportive of that. She's she from the Tulsa area? North Dakota. She's Viking, man. Yeah. <laughs> Ludifisk and left son. And she looks like everybody in North Dakota. Blonde hair, green eyes. Like, it's fascinating. It's like a clone shop up there. We haven't been to North Dakota in a long time, honestly. But I think, well, I know we consider Tennessee our home. And she's, man, she's been so supportive. I've figured out that she would rather be a widow than married to a coward. Ooh. And... So like with Haiti, whatever, because it's not a great time to be doing yeah. stuff there. And, and I was actually trying to get some a little bit of sympathy, honestly, because I'm, I'm getting too old for the Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> and she's really good at the pep talks of, you know, you've given your word. You have these people are dependent. Like you, she says that, you know, you're immortal this side of heaven until God is done with you. And whether you're here in Franklin or whether you're in Port-au-Prince, you're... An old missionary told us that a long time ago. She actually believed it, so she reminds me of that often with it. So she's been great. She is on staff at the church. All the design, all that stuff, she does all that stuff, makes it feel like a home in there. But she just makes people feel seen and loved in a way that I am incapable of and completes me in a way that I do not deserve. And she's given us four amazing kids three daughters, 25, 22, and 21. Actually, 20. She's about to be 21. And then a son who's 16. He was our, uh, it was a risky little stunt, actually. <laughs> we have three daughters. We would go for a fourth, you know? Um, but he's still at home with us right now. And, and I'm, I'm, they're great, man. They've been with me all over the world and ruined for the ordinary in ways that are, like my son is like, like can we go to Egypt? Can we, you know, he's, but, you know, they were like, he was five years old the first time he went to Haiti. Like, he's, they've just been places where most kids don't get to go. So, yeah. it's created, you know, great kids. Love them. Darren Tyler, let's get to rapid fire questions. Oh, yeah, you got those. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. How'd that stick treat you? That's good. I want to figure out where to order that. So. Most podcast guests, they forget to puff on it and they constantly relighting whenever they do. And then, you know, they still have like three quarters of their stick left or even more. You'd work it right in there. Yeah. Until it finally did go out. It but did, it, but there's, about, there's about a third left. So I made it past like uh, some of them at least. Like. You made it past most. Okay. I think that one might be one of the most smoked down cigars. Because right. even when I was interviewed, I barely puffed on mine and I was like... I, I'm gonna puff more. I'm gonna. I didn't. <laughs> I was very relaxing with it. So, when did you first try cigars or pipe? The Swisher Sweets or actual cigars? Both. Swisher Sweets, like which what I thought a cigar was, yeah. was I was like 17. Yeah. Wooden tips and uh, we actually had plastic tips, but the wooden tips were the, like for rich kids. So, yeah, that was the first time I did that. Now, actual cigar, cigar was with Chuck Tilley, my boss at Vanguard Entertainment, in 1994. Atlanta, Georgia, sitting on his deck. Do you ever do pipe? Yes, but I think I'm too lazy for it. Because there's a lot, a lot of work in the pipe. There's a lot of ritual, and yeah. I'm a low-hassle guy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, totally. like, like, ribs taste delicious, but there's so much effort with, for so little payoff. You know what I mean? Like, you're, I'm wiping. I'm just, so pipe felt like that to me, that I was always disappointed in myself for not being able to keep it lit. and. 
I mean, I've got a couple of really nice pipes, but I just never break them out. You have a favorite cigar? I love, recently, anything Rocky Patel is putting out. But you know what my favorite one is right now? Is actually this Pro Solve, C-O-L-V, from Honduras. I just discovered it. 2019's, I don't even know if that even means anything anymore, but like Cigar of the Year, Tobacco Magazine Cigar of the Year, this Honduran cigar that I uh, discovered in El Progreso, uh, San Pula, whatever. I was at a cigar shop down there. And I'm like, man, I love these things. I brought back like boxes of them. Like I want to go, I got to get to Honduras because I'm getting low on them. So I got to get back down there. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked. So I was at a party that I did not belong at with like bourbon that I could never afford. And they were these like cigars that were rumored to be in the 50 to $60 range per some anniversary thing. And I was like, when am I ever going to get a chance to do that again? Right. So now I'll be honest, it didn't feel any better than the, like if someone didn't tell me that that was a whatever $60 cigar, I don't even know how the price range, I wouldn't have known it. I mean, my palate is not refined in that way, but yeah, it was, that was actually recently like, all right, I'll smoke it. Yeah. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Online, cigar bid. You have a local shop that you go hit up? Yeah, Crown, so Crown Cigar is the, my normal haunt here in Franklin. It's a great little shop. It's actually, there's two of them side by side up there in Brentwood, but Crown is the one that I, I go to the most. And then honestly, sometimes I'll just get a, you know, a sample from Costco. <laughs> yeah. You gotta put them in the humidor for a little bit sometimes, but. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Besides Diet Coke, there's a bourbon, is it Haven Hill, Heaven Hill? It's actually pretty cheap. And it's one of my favorite yeah. bourbons. That's generally it. And then honestly, Whistle Pig, it's kind of embarrassing to say it out loud because it sounds so white trash, but have you ever had Whistle Pig? No. Yeah, it's a Kentucky bourbon. It's pretty good. <laughs> Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Ted Decker. Ooh. I knew that's a name drop. But that, Ooh. when you say fascinating. Where does he live? Uh, Franklin. Does he? Yeah. I don't think he would even remember me. But as far as like fascinating, like I would love to just, like if there was such a thing as make a wish for old people, uh, one thing before you, like literally hanging out with him for a day just to see, because I feel like when, when he wakes up, he's doing and thinking about things that I've never even thought about before. Like he just lives in this whole other plane of existence. And yeah, so yeah, but that was because of cigars. Best conversation over a cigar. Post pandemic ish, Donald Miller, Dave Ramsey, Stephen Mansfield, Michael Easley, Mike Glenn, like these it was mega church pastors, authors, all kind of sitting in this circle discussing the world. And I didn't want that night to end because Scott Sauls was there too. Like different varying opinions. This was like March of 2020. The world was about to shut or maybe had just shut down or whatever. We were still like trying to figure it out. And so listening to this variety, you know, you got, you know, Dave who owns this large company and employees whose jobs are on the line. You've got pastor, you know, he's from New York. So he's got that New York thing going and I'm, you know, I'm a scrapper fighter and, you know, Miller's just brilliant in general. And so that was the most interesting conversation I can ever remember because it was like, it was uh, spirited and it was fun and fascinating and walked out maybe more confused than I walked in, but, <laughs> but I was fascinated. Most memorable cigar experience. 2016 hotel bar 
in Haiti watching the election results come in. The, it was the only place we could find it there. If anybody's especially been outside of the city, there's not a lot of options to watch TV or whatever. So yeah. this hotel had uh, CNN on. Yeah. And I thought, like everybody, I thought that was going to be a short night. We're going to be in bed by yeah. 9 o'clock. But by midnight, I think I'm on like my third Maduro or whatever. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, So I'll never forget that. I remember watching New York Times had a basically almost a speedometer that would go between the two. Yes. The needle that would go between the two. And it was Hillary, like... 80% and then Hillary 70% and then 60% yes. and then all of a sudden it started moving Trump and I was like what in the world I never expected no, that nobody did and outside the hotel there was a lot of noise and so I was under the assumption that we were getting it was bad we were going to be in trouble because there was a lot of media about how you know he hates other countries and stuff and but they were celebrating what the Haitians what? hate the Clintons. Why? They, the Clinton Foundation, and it's baked into their culture. The average person on the street in Haiti knows that somewhere near $500 million came in for Haiti for the Clinton Foundation. And in their minds, which I don't think is accurate, is that they just took all the money and they just made, they, they were rich off of it instead of now, in defense of the Haitians, and this is true of Red Cross in many places, it's really hard to find any evidence of anything that was done with the money. Like, there's no, like, infrastructure that was built. There's no report of what was done with it. But in their minds, uh, she was uh, the devil. And I didn't know any of that before. Like, yeah. was, I could not have been more shocked. Like, like they were like, yeah, USA. <laughs> like what? Like, I'm sorry, I got to catch up with the with the thing here. I thought we were. I thought you were about to take me out yeah. and beat me down. Yeah. So yeah, they, of everybody that did not like uh, Trump, the Haitians loved him, and still do. Wow. All right, Marvel or DC? Oh, Marvel. Even as a kid? No, it was DC. But that's why I don't like it as an adult because they keep messing them up. They mess up my storylines. Do you see the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League? on HBO Max. So I haven't seen that. So in fairness to me. It's really good. Okay. If so that I maybe exactly wouldn't have gone through that gone through that tragedy and had been pulled off and they brought in Joss Whedon. Yeah. Huh. It's really good. It's really, really well done. Okay, so maybe really I'll impressed. give it a try. Yeah. I it's, just it's worth getting HBO yeah. Max just to get it. Just to watch that one. Okay. And then cancel it again. Yeah. No. Yeah. And then bin, you know, the rest of the month, binge whatever else it is. Just get it for that. that's on there, and then <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek. Star Trek. It's embarrassing. Really? I'm sorry. Wow. No, I I loved both growing up. Why? I, Star Trek feels more intellectual in the earlier days, especially. Yeah. Then Star Wars. Star Wars. You know, had the, the you know they had the great you know whatever, the Donald Miller storyline. You know the six plot. Like it was they were great. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I really enjoyed Star Trek. I like the I like the Next Generation. Next Generation was awesome. Yeah, right. I don't know if that makes me a geek or not, but but yeah, if I had to choose, I'd choose Star Trek. Favorite food. Favorite food. I am a fried chicken. So this is like favorite. Like I, I can't. Maybe it's why I, anything that is like Southern like that. You basket in gravy and batter and fry it like. You know, if you, 
They say when you grow up poor, like you develop a taste for like really bad food for you because like the worst food for you is the cheapest. And so I look back and think there's a lot of truth in that. But yeah, so favorite, I guess favorite food. Now that said, if I were sitting down and got to choose any restaurant in town, I could go. I would for sure be choosing like Ruth's Chris or Morton's and get a just a slab of ribeye. Yeah, and I think as Jim Gaffigan said that, you know, I'm not done eating when I'm full. I'm done when I hate myself. Yeah. So, so just eat till I hate myself. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Dogs. What kind of dog? Uh, we got a pair. We got a pair of English shepherds right now that I just think are hilarious. Yeah. They're working dogs. They're supposed to protect your chickens and your, you know. But we've sold the farm, moved into town. They've taken the city life quite nicely, I might add. But they, they'll still go out in the woods behind our house and bring a possum and drop, drop it on the deck for us, <laughs> making sure we're safe. Nickname growing up. Or young adult, uh, DT or Taiwad? Taiwad. Yeah, it was pejorative. It wasn't a compliment, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, that's the best you got. I'll take it. Yeah. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I don't know, man. That's a good question. Um, I should have probably listened to those ahead of time, so I know your questions. Because I'm a pretty open book. That's why I think everybody pretty much knows everything about me. I have never, ever had any sort of official f surgery before ever. Like, I'm 51 years old. Oh. I've never, so I don't know if that's an interesting fact or not. Yeah. No, uh, that is. I've managed to grow up Wow. for no fault of my own. Your choice. Your reader? Uh, voracious. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? I loved Metaxas' Bonhoeffer biography. That's good. I couldn't put that down. Hillbilly Elegy? fascinating really the history of how hillbillies basically he starts in ohio where he grows up and i'm completely brain farting the author's name right now where he figured out uh that his history of where what happened in dayton didn't start in dayton ohio in the rust belt but it started in the hills of west virginia as far as like the poverty cycle and things it's, it's, it's fascinating to me really and then born fighting which was takes the history of hillbillies and rednecks all the way back to scotland like, did you know, like, the term redneck is not because of farmers and the red sun. It's, uh, like, William Wallace, that whole era, like, those that were resisting the king would cut some kind of cloth. I'm, I might be getting some of this fact wrong. With blood, and they would wear it around their neck as a sign of resistance against the king. And that's where redneck came from. And so, the, not just Irish, but Scottish Irish, when they came to the United States. Yeah found their home in the hills of Appalachia because it felt the most like Ireland yeah. and Scotland. And so the idea of clans and families and stuff, like when you, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, all that, that started hundreds of years ago. And huh. so born fighting, fascinating. Interesting. If it could be any animal, what would you be? Uh, oh, for sure, like a big cat, something that's lion. Or, is that, that probably, that's probably everybody's answers, but... When you walk around, if you're in Africa and you see a lion walk out, they give zero craps. They're not remotely bothered by anything because they're a lion. Yeah. So I would do that because that's, that's not how I am. I'm generally like always on heightened alert or whatever. So that would be a lion. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? Antigua, Guatemala. Have you been? No. Oh, buddy. The temperature is perfect. It's like the thermostat is set to Darren. Like... 68, low humidity, surrounded by volcanoes, cobblestone streets, stone streets from like the 1600s. Uh, it's a very old, old city. 
right just tucked in the middle of Guatemala. Mm. Uh, a little touristy in, in some places, but it's a lovely little town. And you can live cheap there, too. Yeah. Sports teams? I'm not a sports guy. Okay. It's embarrassing, but I tried to be for a little bit, but then I realized I hated it. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? I think my greatest strength is my curiosity. So solving problems is something that I really come alive in and thrive in. When COVID hit and we were trying to figure that out, like I was actually going into that year thinking I needed a sabbatical, I needed some rest and we were gonna take the summer off or something and, and then COVID hit. And a couple months into that, my wife was like, man, you didn't need a sabbatical, you needed a crisis. You've, you're alive right now, you're really? thriving. And so I was like, well, I don't know what that says about me. So I think strength is that, like we were able to, in crisis, curiosity, put to, and think. Like we didn't lead with feelings, we led with fact is what, what our goal was. But that's a weakness as well, because I lead with my head before my heart. People know what I think, but not what I feel, which really doesn't, you don't know me at that point. It's made my wife very lonely over the 27 years from that idea, and I've come Working into that. It. Yeah, for sure now, like, yeah. the idea of, you know, I don't know what I feel about it, I know what I think about it, but, so that's for sure the weakness that, if I could go back to 20-year-old Darren with just that awareness, that you know, humans were not made to be head to head. We were made heart to heart, you know, for connection, and and that starts with, you know, my feelings were not something that I had to overcome and defeat. They were actually a valid tool that the Lord gave us to deal with life on life's terms, and that's for sure not my default. I have to, I'm still learning and training with that. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? If I were to say influence, someone who literally changed the trajectory of my life was a pastor who came to a little town of Superior, Nebraska, the town I grew up in, named with no sense of irony, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that, Superior, 1981, and that pastor that wasn't a, like a, it wasn't a career move, there was no church, it was, it was the 80s recession, but literally changed the trajectory of my life because I saw that there was a world outside of the world that I was in and mm -hmm. I have zero doubt that if I had not had that experience that I would still be there in that town. Again, no shame in it necessarily, but I wouldn't be doing what God had. And the funniest part of that is I have not said the name because it was a she, not a he. Her name is Patsy Busey. She's still alive. She's 86 years old, probably 85. And uh, look, I've read the Bible. I know the theology problems with that. But she was the uh, married to a pastor in the 70s who did the classic 70s affair where he uh, had an affair with the piano player in the church and ran off. And so she, he leaves her with her two kids and she goes off to Bible college in Oklahoma. And, and nobody, literally nobody wanted to be in this town to be a pastor. There was this little couple that wanted to start a church and they were trying to get a pastor to come help. And she was the only one that would say yes. And of course, nobody wanted to go there, you know, but she did. And 30 years later, 33 years later, she retired. And that little church of like 70 to 80 people sent people all over the world, like pastors and children's ministers and youth pastors, missionaries that came out of that little church of 80 people over 33 years. And I was just one of them uh, back in 1989. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? I mean, can I say Jesus with that one? Yeah. I mean, it's too easy, but because his definition of success was so different. But I think of that, like someone who, again, it's not fair because he, you know, hypostatic union, whatever, God and man. 
but as far as a pattern of success that, that I could emulate, I like that. What do you do for self-care to rest, mm. to recharge? So I was told that if you work with your mind, you should rest with your hands. And so for me, that's been either horses or fly fishing. Not just any kind of fishing, but specifically fly fishing because your hands are moving the entire time. The only place I ever lose track of time is on a river with a fly rod. I always know what time it is, but not on the river. So that, that says something about what it's doing for my soul. Wow. What's the best type of cheese? Is Velveeta an option? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's, that's your, not even whatever the, the cheap version of Velveeta was that we had growing up. Um, Gouda. Ooh. I've only recently in the last decade discovered Gouda. And I sound even like, kind of like a douche nozzle saying it, like pretentious, like Gouda, but yeah, really like it. All right, final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? It has meant relationship and connection with men specifically that are not in my normal jet stream of influence or life. It's what it's meant to me. What was the last part of that question? What is it? How has it contributed? Contributed. It's contributed to me in I, because of those relationships, it's expanded my thinking, my empathy expanded. You know, the ability to go have conversations with people and ask questions and and learn from really, really, really wise men. I don't know if you know who James Ryle is. Um, He was part of the original Promise Keepers crew out of. Colorado. He recently passed, but but a guy like that, like I, I like James, doesn't know me. I don't. I'm not in his circles at all. But but at the, you know at the Crown Cigar Shop, James would come in, and I'd be in there working on a sermon. And four hours later, I've just listened to a guy that you know people pay enormous sums of money to have come in and speak at their events. And I'm like, I'm just sitting here smoking a cigar with him. So it's contributed to, in profound ways. Sitting in a circle with Tommy Coombs or Phil Kenge or. Uh, it's that's it's been very rich for me in my life. Uh, it made me a better person, better man. Hmm. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus on this one. Paul. Okay. Uh, that's too Why? close to Jesus. First thing, I'd want to tell him that it worked. Like, are we having the cigar with him before he's dead? Yeah. Okay. I think about that. That this guy gave his life for this for a movement that at that point could have still died on the launch pad and i just would want to tell him that it worked like it's going to be okay like it worked and then i want to ask him about this guy that killed christians martyred them and now is a christian which means some of the christians he would have martyred he's going to be with their families with their moms and their grandmas and their cousins and I'm curious of how that was ever navigated. It doesn't seem to talk about it much. But when he talks about, I'm the least of these, whatever, like, he really was. Like, that guy was Osama bin Laden, you know, and suddenly he's not. Like, if your cousin was Stephen, who he was there to martyr, it might take a little bit to get over that, you know? We'd probably cancel him now. William Wilberforce, he was at a time when, like in Asia right now, where slavery is just part of the bedrock of the society, and somehow he 
as an evangelical Christian, which in that time, again, society, you know, just kind of like now, evangelicals were looked down on. And, yep. But somehow he looked in the same Bible that everybody else was looking at and saw the, that this was a problem and needed to be ended and literally gave up his, his dignity, his reputation, his, you know, the cost of leadership is being misunderstood. And that guy was for sure swimming against the stream. And I would love to just hear how he navigated those waters if he ever second guessed himself if he you know is this worth it i don't know i would love to have that and then a third this is super random but genghis khan like i've just it's the second time genghis khan's been is it said on this trip okay yeah for a guy that killed which probably means i'd get killed so i wouldn't get to finish the conversation with him but i mean that guy literally changed the population of the earth with the amount of killing he like, is he just a normal guy? Like, like a, you just saw him at the store, and it's like, hey, hey gang, you know, how you doing? Because, you know, the, the one-dimensional version of him, right, is that he's, you know, this evil, wicked guy. But I don't know. I would love to hear what drove him. Like, what father wound was he filling to try to kill the earth? Like, the earth. Change the population. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of that bourbon that you love whistle pig it's embarrassing whistle pig what are we celebrating the first blink you know malcolm gladwell blink one is another 125 families going free but maybe the bigger picture of that is another year of getting to follow jesus and literally have done things that have changed the world for the better changed people's lives for the better so slavery is the most obvious of that the most simple one but I just been, I get to do this. It's so crazy that this is my job to inspire people to set slaves free and to drill wells and to build schools and fight for addiction, uh, freedom. And like, I, I get to do this for a living? Like a, another year of that? I'll celebrate that. Darren Tyler, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, my man. Steve, thank you, man. This was a, this was a real treat. Thank you. Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right. We have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.